Welcome to the Strength Rehab Podcast. Join your hosts, Raul Axmayer and Brandon Parker, as they discuss the latest information regarding the health and fitness industries. Topics include sports performance, physical rehab, and of course, general health. Remember, this is the podcast where science meets practice. What's up, everybody? This week on the podcast, we had on Dr. Nick Licamelli. He is a doctor of physical therapy, and he works with people such as Dr. Eric Helms. If you don't know either of these people, you've been living underneath a rock, and I think you need to fix that. Anyways, during the conversation, we dive deep into why he became a physical therapist, why he's so into bodybuilding, and also how his life has changed by becoming a father. I think there's a little bit of everything for anybody that would like to listen, so sit back and enjoy. So what's your story, man? Tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do. Yeah, thank you for having me on. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, a little bit about me. I am a, uh, first, I'm a father uh, to a beautiful little girl, 17 months old. I have another baby girl on the way in May. So it's, uh, it's March now. So final countdown here, gentlemen, this is it. <laughs> um, so I'm a, I'm a father, I'm a, I'm a husband to my, my, my wife. And, um, and I'm also a physical therapist, natural bodybuilder and the uh, injury reduction and management specialist with uh, 3DMJ. How did you score that job? Yeah, so it's, uh, it's, I like telling this story because it, it really goes to show um, how if you kind of just follow your passion and surround yourself with the right people, things just kind of happen and, and kind of work out if you put the work in and, and kind of do the right thing. So when I was... In physical therapy school, I, um, you know, you kind of go through schooling and, and I don't know if this is your guys similar situation too, but you kind of go through schooling and you're taught things and you think it's 100% written in stone. That's the way it is. And so for me, I graduated physical therapy school thinking I was the man. I was going to take on the world. I was going <laughs> to uh, use my hands to heal people. And I was going to be this, uh, you know, uh, this, this healer of a physical therapist. And I couldn't wait for family members to come to me and ask me to help help their neck pain and their knee pain. And I was like, just come to me. I know what it is. You got to strengthen your gluteus medius and, uh, you know, <laughs> we'll, be, we'll be all good. Um, so came out of physical therapy school kind of thinking I uh, I knew everything there was to know. And then there's this phase where you start to um, branch out a little bit from your little bit of like an echo chamber. And when you get out of school, it's easy to kind of get it under a mentor and someone you respect. And then you just become like a miniature version of them. You don't really think for yourself. Um, but then you get exposed to some other other resources. And then you have this kind of existential crisis where you're like, holy cow, like I don't know half as much as I thought I knew. And then you start to embrace that and you start to look for that uncertainty. So that was my situation in physical therapy. And that transition was basically from looking at the patient like a mechanic or a car, you know, the patient's like a car and I have to fix them um, with my hands or with certain modalities or with special exercises. And I started realizing that I have to start looking at the patient as a whole and start understanding this person from the inside out and um, realizing the limitations of some of the interventions that we do as physical therapists and what really the evidence shows. Um, so that was the kind of switch I made in physical therapy. Similarly, 
my journey in bodybuilding was almost the same thing, um, except switch physical therapy school with muscle magazines, right? We get into the muscle magazines and we think we know everything there is to know about weightlifting and bodybuilding. And you and you make that your life. We slam the post-workout shake 30 minutes after our session. <laughs> we uh, take all the supplements that are going to promise us to have all the gains, right? And, um, and then we, we realize, hey, maybe there's another way of looking at this. And then we get introduced to the 3D muscle journeys of the, of the world and, and the barbell medicines of the world and, and, you know, and the like, uh, Renaissance periodization. And, and you just kind of get your world flipped on its head a little bit. So I went through those two changes in my two things that I was passionate about in my life. And that kind of drew me to 3DMJ and 3DMJ changed my life. I was a fan for a long time, took in everything they ever, ever made. Um, and I, as I was in school, I started writing blogs, but didn't know where to put them. I just kind of wrote them and kept them on my desktop. And I was making videos in my parents' basement. Like I didn't know where I was going to put them, didn't know how to use YouTube or anything like that. Um, but I had this information. I wanted to write. I wanted to produce content. I had just nowhere to nowhere to put it. So, are you familiar with Tony Genocore? Tony is like a strength and conditioning, um, uh, strength and conditioning guy up in Boston or Massachusetts. And I was following him for a while too. And he was having a son at the time, so he needed some guest bloggers to uh, to write for his website. I know I'm talking a lot, but trust me, I'll bring it back to how I started with 3DMJ. Um, so I said, holy cow, this opportunity to write for Tony Janelcore, like I got to try it. So I sent him like four blogs that I wrote. I've sent my, my work other places and no one has ever gotten back to me. So I said, what the heck? I'll send it. Then I got an email back from Tony Janelcore himself saying, I like your stuff. I would be happy for you to write for me. So that was like the first, like, holy cow, like this could be something like this is really a great feeling that I have about this. So I wrote for Tony for over a year consistently, like one or two blogs a month, probably. And I loved it. Um, and then Andrea from 3DMJ happened to follow Tony and um, reached out to me and said that she really liked one of my blogs and asked if I'd be interested in, in guest blogging for 3DMJ. If Tony Genocore was a pinch me moment, 3DMJ <laughs> reaching out and, and contacting me was another moment that I'll never forget. And it was just an awesome, uh, it's an awesome experience. And that was pretty much what it was. I wrote for 3DMJ as a guest blogger for about a year. And then Eric and Andrea kind of came to me. Uh, it was right around um, Christmas time. I'll never forget it. And they said, you know, we're looking to kind of have this uh, trifecta of we have a mental health counselor, we have a nutritionist. And we think you would make a great member of our team as the injury reduction, you know, person. And what they said, what do you think? <laughs> I said, what do you think? <laughs> I said, I would be, I would be honored. You know, it would be great to, uh, you know, to, to come aboard. So that was how I started with 3DMJ. And um, also how I started with telehealth, because up to that point, I had never treated anyone or consulted with anyone online. I was strictly in person in the office. Um, so I, I knew that I wanted to do this and be this role for 3DMJ and the 3DMJ athletes. I also knew that I had no idea what I was getting myself into as far as the legalities of telehealth, how to do it. 
So then that kicked me in the butt to dive into telehealth. Um, so joined up with 3DMJ, dove into the world of telehealth for about a year, gobbled up every bit of information I could, spoke to attorneys, spoke to people in the field, took courses, started my own business um, based online. And uh, yeah, and that was, uh, that was 2019. And, and here we are, uh, here we are today. Are you purely online now or are you still going into a brick and mortar? Yeah, good question. So I actually have worked full time um, in, in the brick and mortar. I'm the director of an outpatient orthopedic physical therapy office in, uh, in, in New Jersey. Um, so yeah, I'm working full time in the office and then uh, doing telehealth for, um, for the company that I work with and also doing the telehealth with 3DMJ and my, my business. Um, on the guy. Side. What's that? Busy guy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Sometimes I, I just, but you know what it is? I, I, I am, I'm busy, but it's, it's just, it fuels me. Like it's such cool things. Like if I was sitting, nothing against accountants, I, I've never, I don't know what it's like to be an accountant, but it's Unless just the first thing that came to my mind. <laughs> first thing that came to my mind, like I'm not just like behind a computer, like punching numbers yeah. for hours and hours and hours. Like I'm engaging with people. I'm talking to people like you and helping people and getting positive feedback. And I'm in, I'm in the world of, of, you know, bodybuilding and it's just, it, it's busy, but it's good busy. Um, mm -hmm. and, uh, so yeah, it's, um, all good stuff. Yep. I feel like nobody still completely understands the legalities behind telehealth. Um, cause I was talking with uh, a well-known doc the other day and I asked, cause he has a patient from he's based in Florida and he has a patient from Portugal. And I was like, so how does that work? Uh, like you're not licensed there. Can you still treat him? Like, how does that work? Do you know how that works or what are the legalities behind it? It's different for every profession. So mm -hmm. I think uh, like you guys may be different than physical therapists who are probably different than like an orthopedic surgeon who's different than like a podiatrist. So it's hard to really say. Um, the best advice I would say is probably reach out to an attorney who like specializes in like medical, um, you know, medical uh, situations. That would probably be the best thing to do. So you mentioned that you, you write all these blogs for a year and then you get noticed by Andrew and you start writing from them. That takes a lot of creativity. And I'm just curious, like, what was your muse or like, how, how did you get out of those moments? Cause everyone gets them where you're like, all right, I don't even know what I'm going to write this week. That's a really great question. And what it comes down to for me was I was, so whenever you produce content, you have to have an audience, right? And you have to have someone in mind, some kind of imaginary audience in mind of who you're writing to, because if you're writing to physical therapists, you're going to speak a different language. And if you're writing to um, new people to the weight room versus if you're writing to veterans in the weight room or um, uh, general population people, you're, if you're trying to get the same message across, you're going to speak a different language to those different populations. So the person that I was writing to was my younger self. Mm -hmm. And I just know that all of the things that I thought the journey that I went through, all of the mistakes that I've made, all of the ways that I made mistakes in my personal life because of bodybuilding or made mistakes in the clinic because of the wrong paradigms or inaccurate paradigms or closed mindedness. Um, I had all of that experience from going through it myself. Mm -hmm. So um, as I was learning more and more from 3DMJ and from clinical athlete, uh, 
you, if, those yeah. have you do yeah. know clinical? Okay, yeah. yeah, I was gonna say, gotta follow clinical athlete there. They're they really like the three DMJ of rehabilitation in my in my uh, in my opinion. Um, so yeah, I always just kind of imagine writing for myself and kind of being there for that younger me and wanting to produce the content that would have helped me um, help me back then. When it comes to the, because you kind of, you, you implied it when it comes, you have to have an ability of reflection when you see all these things that you could write about and to your, your past self. I'm just curious, like, let's say you're having a client in your, in, in your daily practice. Do you sit back and like reflect upon each interaction or is it something like, you know, you messed up and it kind of hits you in the middle of the night and you can't sleep. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I think it's both. I think it's both. Um, and usually it, it's not necessarily in the moment. It's more like reflecting on things in the past with new information almost. And honestly, I have a, um, I have, I used to have a, a notebook on the side of my bed because just like you said, literally I would have thoughts come in my head and make, make different connections. And I'm like, Oh my, like, that's a great metaphor for that. And then write it down. And then you just sit down with that metaphor in mind. Then you just write and write. And next thing you know, you have like three pages on a, uh, a metaphor or something with, you know, uh, lifting or something with like reflecting or something like that. Um, so yeah, definitely the, uh, the thoughts just kind of like make connections in their own ways. And then, then you start to make those connections from things that maybe you wouldn't even think were connected. Mm-hmm. Um, so writing, we're having a little notebook uh, next to me and, and writing little notes on my phone to reflect on later is a strategy that I found to help. Do you still compete in bodybuilding or not? Yeah. So my last uh, competitive season was 2018. I um, earned my pro card in two federations at the time. The uh, I saw so I'm in my, I was in supposed to take an off season uh, 2019 and then 2020 hit. And then, so I don't know, you know, I'm trying to wait for some stability in the world before I go die down for six months and then have my show canceled or something like that. But it's not all about the, the shows obviously, but, also with the baby coming, uh, you know, and everything like that. I'm going to just try to ride life out for a couple months and see how things go. And then we could always uh, consider competing. But the my journey in bodybuilding um, is definitely a huge mistake that I made early on. And I think is probably still affecting me to this day. My first show I competed in, I was 165, 165 pounds. I'm about 5'8", five, 5'9". Probably had no business stepping on a bodybuilding stage. I had abs and I was maybe the, the one of the best physiques in my circle at the gym. So I said, what the heck, I'll tan myself up and go on this competition. But then you see the caliber conditioning that's on stage. So that was 2013. From 2013, basically five years of just dieting and competing and dieting and competing um, with the goal of getting a pro card and getting first place, which is never, should never be the goal. Um, you know, if, if any competitors out there are listening, you need to understand that your placing in a competition has everything to do with who's next to you, has nothing to do with the package that you bring. You can look your absolute worst and get first place because there's people next to you that maybe look worse. 
They're not going to not give you first place, right? So you can look your absolute worst and get first place. You can look your absolute best and get fifth place. I didn't understand that. I just wanted trophies. I wanted first place. I wanted that pro card. Um, and it, it led me to a place where I, I, um, I resented com- competing. I just didn't like it. I was critiquing the judges when I, after the show and not to their face, to myself, whining to myself, um, you know, like, Oh man, like my legs are in more condition than that guy. How did he get, how did he get second? And I got third. And then you, you realize like, why am I doing this? Am I really doing this to get first place? Or am I doing this because I love it? Like, this is something that I like to do. Um, so I spent those years just dieting down to keep competing as much as I could in hopes that people would show up that would look worse than me and I would get first place. In that time, I developed quite a, I guess, a decent physique. Um, my last competition, I was 139 pounds on stage. So I dropped a lot of weight, lost a ton of muscle, but I was shredded. And it was just enough to kind of squeeze me by to, to earn my pro card uh, in those two federations in 2018. After that, I said, okay, this is, has to, I have to take an off-season. I have to grow. I know better. I, I, I teach people not to do this. And I just spent the past five years doing this. Um, I have to take a proper off season. So I feel like I lost a ton of strength, a ton of size throughout that period. So I'm feel like I'm picking up the pieces slowly. Um, but yeah, that's, uh, kind of been my journey through, through bodybuilding. So talk about having ideas to write or make content. I could just simply look back on everything that I did and, and, you know, just try to help people that may be in that same mindset. Um, but yeah, as far as competing, that's pretty much, I'm, I'm waiting for my life to, for the pieces to kind of fall a little bit and, uh, see how, how life is with two little babies and try to be there for them as much as I can for now, but competing will always be there. And, uh, so hopefully soon, hopefully soon I'll step on stage again. So you were 139 on your last show and what's your current weight? I'm curious. Right now about 165. Okay. And you know, living, uh, feel good. Like I'm not trying to super bulk i'm not trying to maintain weight i'm kind of just this is kind of where i settle if i'm kind of eating enough proteins uh, feeling satisfied and then training and everything like that so yeah about about 160 165 i'm curious because when it comes to most field sports a lot of people um kind of like you know they get through the practice so they can make it to game day and then that's where they truly enjoy it where you see a lot of people gravitate to the weight room, which is essentially bodybuilding as long as the intent is to improve their physique. Um, But not a lot of people want to go through the dieting process and then actually get rated on stage. So for example, I'm one of those people. I love to lift. I love to improve my physique, but I don't know if I'll ever take the jump and go on to the stage. What was the driving factor for you to get on stage and get rated by these judges that could be purely subjective? That's a really good question. And I, before I stepped on stage my first time, I asked myself the same question. I was standing backstage behind a curtain. I had my Speedo on, fake tanner on, my family, my aunts, my uncles, my, my in-laws. I wasn't married at the time, but my girlfriend's parents were there. My girlfriend's like 13-year-old brother was there. And like I'm standing backstage looking down at whatever there is to look down at down there. And I'm like, what in the world? <laughs> how did I get here in my life? So, uh, yeah. So, uh, I, I think what made me take the leap to, uh, to step on stage was 
I, I wanted something to show for everything that I was doing. I, I knew that I had a, I knew that I liked the physique I was building. I knew that I was working hard. I knew that it was part of my life, but I had nothing to show for it. And I was at a family party one time and I forget who it was, but they came up to me and they said, um, you know, I looked like you when I was your age. And it, they weren't didn't mean anything like it. They were just talking in conversation and I, I didn't take offense to it, but it was like almost like they planted it like a, a grenade in my head. And then like five hours later, it just went off. And I was like, no, you didn't. Like, you, did not, you didn't look like me. You don't, you don't train like me. You don't know what I know about nutrition. You don't, this isn't your life. Like, you, so then I said to myself, like, what if I leave this phase of my life and I never have anything to show for it, right? Okay. So as silly as that may sound, the 20, however old I was, year old self of mine, that was one of the reasons why I, um, why I stepped on stage. Also, as silly as it sounds, um, do you know, I don't know in Florida, you know, Elvis Duran, he's on the radio. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So it was like all around the same time, there was a competition, like a couple months in the future. And there's a guy at the gym who competed and he was kind of talking me into a little bit. And I, Elvis Duran was on the radio and he said, he just kind of went on this rant. Everyone stopped talking and Elvis just like went like hard on this rant and it was like he would grab me by the, the shirt and was talking to me and he said um look life is too short life is too short if there's something you want to do do it he said you have nothing to lose if there's something even a small like flicker of an idea that you may want to do he said do it because life is too short and if you have an opportunity to do something do it all those things came at me at the same time. So I said, you know what, I'm going to dive into this world and see what it's all about. And then once I competed once, I kind of, you know, I liked it, dove deeper and deeper into it. And that's kind of uh, how I got into it. So you're a dad, you're a husband, you have like a million different jobs. How do you manage your time? <laughs> Talk to my wife and see, see, <laughs> see if I should be talking about how to manage my time. Um, <laughs> but uh, whew, that's a good question. Um, honestly, I probably say it comes down to communication. Um, I, I let, I let my wife know what is, what's happening. I let her know, um, what the schedule is going to look like. I let her know what I'm doing, why I'm doing it. Um, I let her know that, you know, things are going to be a little busy, a little hectic these next, these next couple of weeks, because I have a project I'm working on that has to get released. And I also have this going on at work and I have this going on here. So I'm just going to need a little bit of time. But then after that, things will be a bit normal for, for a little longer. And, and um, so communication is key uh, with a significant other. Um, and, and the other thing is um, that, uh, that I found to be super important um, with, uh, with time management is kind of understanding that there are going to be times when you have to sacrifice. Um, but it, it's not always big things that you need to, to stay consistent in other roles as you kind of lean more toward one role. So I think of it like a tightrope. I think Lane Norton was the first one who thought of that, who, who I've heard that from the tightrope analogy, but it's like you're on a tightrope and you don't ever dive into one or dive into the other, but sometimes you lean And sometimes you lean back the other way, but you don't ever fall off. You kind of maintain your balance, but you lean 
um, side to side. And, and when it comes to relationships, being a son to my, to my parents, being a brother to my brother, um, all of these roles, being a friend to my friends, all of these different roles, they, they don't take big extravagant things to let them know that you care about them. Mm-hmm. It takes, it's the little things that, that, that matter. And when, when I, I find that when I'm busy and when I'm, when I'm prepping for a competition, I start to search more for those little things and search more for those ways that I can show or tell someone I appreciate them or pick up $5 flowers for my wife on a Thursday, just because it's Thursday, right? Mm -hmm. Like, because I know I, I haven't been able to spend much time with her. So those little things like just to keep your foot in all of your roles and, and you don't kind of fall off, fall off that tightrope. Um, I will say that I don't, I don't like the saying everything in moderation because I don't think that's the case. I think, and as cliches it may sound, I think everything in moderation may make you mediocre at, at everything. Um, I think you do have to, uh, kind of get out of that, um, that, that, that moderation mindset and, and go into things and, and put the, put your best effort into it, knowing full well that saying yes to one thing is saying no to about five other things. Mm-hmm. Um, so kind of have your priorities straight. Also know your why. So for me, my why is, uh, you know, it, it is, and always has been to improve quality of life and inspire healthy living. It's kind of why I exist. Um, that took me like months to put into a simple sentence when I started my business. I said, why, why do I exist? Like, what do I do? What do I do outside of, of my job in my home with my, with my family, uh, in my job with 3DMJ, with anything, any content that I make, what is consistent throughout everything. And it's to improve quality of life and inspire healthy living. So that is that being my North star, like my guiding light, whenever I make a decision about something, I have to just keep that in mind. Like, is this true to my why? Am I doing this for the right reasons? Um, So all that being said, I'm not good at time management, but those are the things that I try to keep in my mind as I'm kind of going through this crazy time of juggling a lot of things. Have you ever felt like you ever overextended yourself? And if so, how did you kind of pick up the pieces? Yeah. So I wouldn't, I tend to deal with stress pretty well. Um, I, I, I tend to keep things into perspective. Uh, I, I definitely have felt stressed when a lot of things are moving at once and all kind of coming in together at once. But um, what has helped me a lot is deep breathing. Mm-hmm. Um, not meditation, like official, like meditation, like sit down with your legs crossed and like say a mantra or something like that. But just the the ability to um, to focus on your breathing and just feel the air going in your nose and feel it coming out of your mouth. Just the ability to shut out the noise of any thought coming into your head and just focusing on your breathing or focusing on anything else. But the ability to control your mind to center itself um, it is, is invaluable. And I found that to be super helpful, even if it's just 30 seconds, like when you start to feel that feeling of being maybe overwhelmed, so breathe in, breathe out. And that has 
really been a game changer uh, for me. What I was lucky, uh, I was I was lucky because I, I got into. I, I should say one of the the most life changing habits that I that I've kind of adopted was reading. Uh, I love reading books about, um, I guess like mindset and not, not like personal development, but, uh, books like, um, Stephen Covey is one of my favorite authors. Simon Sinek's one of my favorite authors. Although all those kind of books, like I just dove in hard to all that kind of content, read those books like three or four times each have notebooks and notebooks of notes that I took when I read those books. And I read those books before I had any of this, like before I was doing any of this stuff. I, I, I read those books when I was in my, my parents' house, like graduating undergrad college. So I kind of had that foundation built as all of these things started coming to me and I started taking on all these roles. I had that kind of mindset and, and the ability to focus on the important things and, and, uh, and kind of the benefits of, of things like deep breathing and meditation. And, um, so yeah, I, I would say the, uh, the ability to have a why to focus on your why, um, deep breathing, uh, helps, helps you focus as well. And then just read, you know, find, find those, those authors, like I said, Stephen Covey, Simon Sinek, I, I'm, I'm missing so many other great authors, but, um, but yeah, they, those books have really, really changed my life. What are your three favorite books if you had to choose right now? The uh, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, Stephen Covey. Um, uh, Start with Why, Simon, Simon Sinek. And this is going to be a wild card. But it, so I would say all of Stephen Covey's works, like The Eighth Habit, uh, all, all of his books are kind of lumped into one. I would say all of Simon Sinek's books are lumped into one. Um, Leaders Eat Last is another great one by Simon Sinek. But the first type of those books that I read was called um, The Five Secrets You Must Discover Before You Die by John Izzo. And he basically went around the world and interviewed people from the age of 65 onward from all over the world, all different walks of life. He interviewed old men who owned barber shops in the Midwest. He interviewed Native American, like, chiefs in you know on reservations he he interviewed wall street uh gurus who were very wealthy average joes he interviewed all these people and took those interviews and put it into a book that book was the spark that made me interested in stopping to read like fiction like not there's anything wrong with fiction but i was going from like reading harry potter you know to like <laughs> to to then diving into this stuff And that book uh, was was the, the spark kind of that set everything off. So I can't not mention that one. So with you being a father and about to be a father of two, um, it's a big life change. And, and I'm curious, has there been any large paradigm shifts, whether it be career related or just life related? Have you has there been a large change in thinking? Whew. For sure. For sure. Um, I, I realized that um, we only have this moment that we're in um, a concept that I've read about for years, uh, but never actually saw it um, or lived it. Uh, I have in smaller circumstances, but when you have a baby, 
it's so easy. It is so easy to let those first months fly by and not take in everything because man, you blink your eye and you go from holding this thing who can't control her head to like, when I come home from work, she like grabs a balloon and hits me with it and runs away because she wants (laughs) me to chase her. Like that happens so fast. And the, it's so important to, to understand that all we have is right now. So right now I'm enjoying this conversation with you guys. I'm not thinking about anything else because I won't get this back. Right. It's just happening right now. And if I think about something else that maybe I have to do, it's not helping that thing. And it's not helping this thing that we're doing right now. So the ability to just focus on the now has been really thrown in my face with being a father. Um, and, uh, and what actually what helped, uh, which is kind of bad to say, I don't, I don't, I'm not saying that it was a good thing, but there are some silver linings in COVID because when COVID hit, um, we were forced to, to spend more time at home. So my daughter was born in September of 2019. I anticipated me wanting to be home more and not necessarily go to the gym. So I made my little section in my basement with the basics to to train if I had to, if I had to, you know, maybe one day I didn't want to go to the gym. I wanted to stay home and do a set in the basement, go upstairs or, you know, whatever. Little did I know (laughs) that that would pay off in the next five months because the world's going to shut down. So, um, I was with COVID, I was able to spend much more time at home. The telehealth stuff blew up, which was great. I was working from home much, much more. I got to see my daughter crawl as I was on a call with a patient. I said, wait, 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 hold on. My daughter just crawled to my mom over or something like that. Right. Mm. Um, so, so COVID, um, COVID really was a game changer with, with the first year of my daughter's life. Um, but as far as a paradigm shift, I think, I realize that the now is all we have and that it's, it's hard because you can't always be there mm-hmm. as much as I want to say, I'm always there. It's just not feasible, right? There are, there are sacrifices that I make, like we talked about before that I know that if, if I am not there now, it will help her later mm-hmm. because of one reason or another, right? There are a couple, any reason you can pick of why me working and focusing on something may help her later. Um, I need to understand that that's the case. I also need to communicate that to my wife. And when my daughter is old enough to comprehend, I need to communicate that with her so that she doesn't think that this uh, plastic folding thing with an Apple logo on the back of it is more important than her, right? If I'm always behind a laptop, I don't want her to think that. So when she's old enough to comprehend, I would love to explain that to her. Like, look, I love you daddy's just got to do this because X, Y, and Z, or maybe, and, or make promises. Like, you know, as soon as I'm done with this, then we can do X, Y, and Z. And gosh, darn, I got to keep that promise because I can't start that off once she starts comprehending. And now I could, I could do whatever I want, say whatever I want to her. And she's just like, happy go lucky. She doesn't know. But, uh, but yeah, so kind of got off track there a little bit, I think, but I guess the the paradigm shift of being a father and and also being passionate about what I do professionally and and personally with bodybuilding is um, try to focus on the now, understand that sacrifices have to be made, but then just make sure that you are um, you know kind of minding your your tightrope and and not 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 diving in too much and and letting things slide by. 
it's definitely a skill. I mean, it's easy for somebody to say something along the lines of just like be here and now, but if you genuinely care about all the things you're doing, it's going to be in your conscious. You know what I'm saying? It's something that's going to have a fluttering. It's going to come across during a conversation, but it takes a skill to say, not now I'm in this moment. And I'm sure that having a daughter, it kind of pushes you or at least expedites that skill. But, but yeah, I think it's, it's a massive understatement that a lot of people don't have. It, it, uh, it, 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 it expedites that skill, mm-hmm. but it, it also highlights all your, all your, your shortcomings Okay, because she's always there. So every, it's just like every, it's just like a constant reminder that I'm not there in those moments, mm-hmm. especially when I'm working from home because she's there. Like if I was at an office, maybe I wouldn't think of it every second, but because this little girl with these curls bouncing around is running around my living room as I'm trying to write or, or do, or, you know, on a call with a patient or something like that. Um, it highlights your shortcomings. And that is probably something that I've noticed with fatherhood is that having this little baby in my life and knowing how much I want to be there for her. Um, it really, it really does highlight shortcomings and it keeps throwing them in your face constantly. Um, but you have to, for me, I just accept that that thought came into my head. Um, just kind of, you know, accept it. Like we talked about, breathe in, breathe out, look at it logically. Say, why am I feeling like this? Like, why am I feeling like this? I know that I'm doing my best at this fatherhood thing. I know I'm doing my best as this physical therapist thing. I know I'm trying my best at all these roles what more do you want from me? Uh, subconscious, right? What more do you want from me? I'm trying my best. Um, so yeah, that's definitely a good point that children can, uh, can really, uh, kind of show you your shortcomings, uh, very, very quickly. I mean, we always learn from our mistakes, right? Whether it be in the (laughs) clinic, whether it be with the, you know, your daughter and and that's where the most, most growth growth is going to happen because, you know, if you did something well, you're just going to pat yourself on the back and move on. (laughs) You know, <laughs> for sure. And I can almost guarantee you that if I listen to this in five years, I will think completely differently. Mm-hmm. And I almost hope that's the case because like we talked about in physical therapy and bodybuilding, if I still thought the same way I did five years ago, mm-hmm. that wouldn't be a good situation. So I'm, I'm hoping that I listen to this five years from now and I'm like, Oh, young man, (laughs) you have no idea like what's to come or like how much your mindset has to change. Like maybe I sound very immature when it comes to father. Maybe there are fathers out there who are like, you got a lot of growing up to do kid. Like, you know, but, uh, but yeah, I'm hoping that through my, I'm, I'm, I'm 100% confident that I'm making mistakes. Uh, But I just hope that I learn from those mistakes and become a better person, father, you know, because of it. So how do you see yourself in five to 10 years? Whew. Honestly, I have no idea. I have no idea. He's in the I, <laughs> I have, uh, if you would have told me five years ago what my day-to-day would look like now, I, I got a smartphone in 2014 for the first time. <laughs> I had a flip phone before that. If you would have told me that I was going to be doing telehealth with, with people who are bodybuilders, and I, I would have said, like, What? Like I would have never thought that. So I actually stopped setting goals for myself because I used to want to be a physical therapist for the New York Jets. That was my goal. That is the furthest thing from what I want to do with my life now. I, I like football. I played football, but I don't want to immerse my life in football. Like I don't want to work 
10 months out of the year, uh, 24 seven and travel uh, all these different places and never be with my family. And I don't want to do that. Um, but if you would have asked me that in physical therapy school, five or six years ago, I, that's what I would have said. That was my goal or, you know, so it's interesting because you're always here. You're supposed to set goals for yourself. But I find that if, if I set goals, I'd probably limit myself. Maybe it would make me more closed minded or or hyper-focused or something like that. So I like setting short-term goals, but as far as long-term, I just kind of keep following the things that, that, that fuel me, um, follow the people that, that I, that I respect and look up to just have an open mind and, um, and then kind of see where, where it takes me. Do you do a lot of telehealth with bodybuilders? Yeah. Yeah. That's so, it, yeah. Uh, have you, so number one, how does a typical telehealth visit, uh, with a bodybuilder look like with you? Yeah. Great question. So usually, um, it, I will, every session, whether it's in person or, or telehealth has to start with, um, building therapeutic alliance. We have to build that relationship. Um, we have to let the patient know that I, that we care. We have to let them know that I'm not looking at them as a shoulder, as a knee, as a lower back. I want to get to know them. I want to get to know, uh, what this, this pain means to them. What is it about your pain? Is it the fact that it's preventing you from lifting or is it the fact that it's preventing you from, I don't know, going on a fishing trip with your dad? Or is it, is it preventing you from picking up your child? Are you afraid it's going to get worse? Do you have a, a, a you know, an elderly parent who is overweight and wheelchair bound and you don't want to be that person. So you think this knee pain that you have is going to progress and get worse and worse. And you're going to be the same way. All of these different uh, scenarios require a completely different approach. I had a patient one time who this wasn't a bodybuilder, but it was a patient who um, had uh, lower back pain and she was almost like brought to tears as I was talking to her about her pain. And so I was just talking more and more and turned out that her daughter had just had a child. So she was a new grandmother and her daughter's in-laws. So the other grandparents on the other side, that grandmother was like this older fit hip, like kind of very active, like cool older lady. And she was always playing with the baby and like running around the yard. And then this woman who I was treating said she kind of feels like she wants to be that role, but this pain is preventing her from doing that. So she's almost envious. She's jealous. She is, um, uh, it, you know, it's very emotional to, to kind of think like that. Like you're not going to be the grandparent that you want to be for your child compared to this other image of a grandmother, right? A little bit of a tangent, but just to kind of show that we have to figure out what this pain means to that person. So then once we kind of go through that um, and we rule out red flags, so things like numbness, tingling, pain that's constant, um, fever, uh, some kind of mechanism of injury, like a car accident or a bad fall or something like that. Um, Once we kind of rule out those red flags, Usually it's a matter of trying to figure out what is provoking this pain, what 
um, factors we can modify in the training, whether it's load, whether it's um, sets and reps, whether it's frequency, maybe it's exercise selection, maybe we need to change their technique a little bit, move one foot in, move one foot out, move their arms a little bit on the bench press or what have you. Um, and we, ha we just kind of find that little variable or, or variables and we make a slight change. So if um, usually the advice, and I'm sure you guys see this all the time, is, is uh, stop training. You go to a doctor and you say, oh, I have knee pain, I have back pain. Okay, stop training for four weeks and see how it feels. Okay, I'm pretty sure it's going to feel good if you're not doing any training. But if training is a goal of yours, we got to keep you training. Um, so what I like to look at is kind of the opposite of where I see most physical therapists as a whole most physical therapists, in my experience, usually start at the lowest level. So we have someone come in who's a fairly experienced lifter, and they have back pain, say. Where most physical therapists will start is some kind of like maybe pelvic tilting, maybe some bird dogs, maybe some planks, maybe some clamshells, and maybe some like transverse abdominus activation, maybe some core strengthening, because we all know that if someone has back pain, their core must be weak, right? <laughs> I'm joking. If you can't see the video, they, I'm smiling and making a joke. So I don't want anyone to take that away from this. Um, obviously, this person is strong if they are squatting 315, right? They're not, it's not like their core is weak. Um, so where I like to, how I like to approach it, and this is very similar. I learned this from Quinn Hennick of Clinical Athlete, is we start at the top, right? So if someone is a, a high-level weightlifter and they have pain with the squat, let's say, for example, rather than drop them down to some kind of quadruped movement, why don't we just try adding a box to their squat, make it a box squat, right? Or what if we try just decreasing the load or dropping the RPE? You know, maybe they get their pain when they push it to failure. Maybe they get their pain with lighter loads. Maybe they get their pain with heavier loads. Maybe they get their pain once they're in the hole of the squat, right? So all of these different things we just modify one of those things. Um, and then if it feels, if it still doesn't feel good, we just modify a little more, modify a little more. And then once we find some place where we can load that tissue and load that movement, we just load it, load it, load it in that comfortable way, desensitize that pain response, and then work in a stepwise fashion back up the same way we came down. So maybe it's um, in the simple example of a box squat, Maybe we drop down to a box squat. That feels good. Okay, so we groove that box squat for a week or two. And then maybe we do, you know, two sets of the box. And then we get the box out for two sets and see how that feels. If that wasn't tolerated well, okay, go back to the box. Or maybe we just kind of, you know, slowly increase um, or slowly remove those modifications to the training. And then throughout that process, we're learning their tolerance. We're learning their ability. We're learning that the, the sweet spot of where we can be still maintain a training effect um, without provoking that pain. And that is the goal is to maintain a training effect without reinforcing um, that pain. So that's usually the approach I take with, with bodybuilders, weightlifters, athletes, but really even everyday people, you know, the goals are just different. If someone has a hard time standing up from a chair an older, an older patient has a hard time standing up from a chair or walking 10 feet. That's the same thing as someone with a box squat. So maybe we'll just say, okay, on your chair at home, 
why don't we stack up a couple like cushions, make it a little bit taller and, uh, you know, and maybe use your countertop to pull yourself up. And then maybe next week we try just pulling yourself up with one arm instead of two arms. And then maybe we try taking a cushion out in a week and see how that feels. And it's the same kind of process. We want to keep them functioning as much as they can. Um, all the while building resiliency, education, and the goal in any interaction is to make that patient more independent. And dare I say empowered, as, as cliche as that sounds, but it, it's true. The best thing, one of, my, the, the, one of my favorite things that patients can tell me is that they feel more confident if this were to flare up again. They say, you know, we went through this process. Um, I had a flare up. I did X, Y, and Z that you and I tried and we worked together and it felt better. And I kept on training. That is my goal. And my goal is to take them through this process as a guide, as a mentor, not as someone who's like fixing anyone or, you know, I, I always say it and I'm not being overly humble. I honestly say like, if people thank me, I, I say, you know, you're welcome, but don't forget, like you did the work, <laughs> especially in telehealth. It's because I'm literally just this talking head on a computer to them. They're doing all the work in the office. It may be different because, you know, maybe we touch them or we can interact with them better, but telehealth is all on the patient. So success in telehealth is heavily reliant on the ability to have that um, therapeutic alliance and, and educate and educate and, and take them through that process allowing them to be able to do that moving forward if anything else kind of flares up. So I don't have a lot of experience working with bodybuilders so, and I'm curious, so I'm going to ask you uh, a couple questions. Do you feel like bodybuilders compared to gen pop have catastrophizing behavior towards first pain search like fear avoidant, or maybe they're the type of people that they just crush through pain, hoping that it gets better. And do you take that into consideration uh, on telehealth visits? For sure. And honestly, I see it. I see the, on both ends of the spectrum. Some bodybuilders are so in tune with their body and they're so caught up in, in doing their research and Googling things and following different social media accounts. And, and, the, uh, and, and they'll, they'll come to me with, with a diagnosis that, that they've come up with out of thin air. Like they'll say, hey, you know, Dr. Nick, I have shoulder pain because I'm impinging and my supraspinatus is probably torn. And uh, it's because my shoulder, I have bad posture at work. And like, I, I'm like, wait, wait, wait. <laughs> like you just said like five things that made my blood boil. So we need to think, I don't, I don't say that obviously. Right. But, and that's important. So when, when I hear things like that, I don't just initially say like, you know, research shows I, I accept it and I take it in and say, okay, I understand that you're thinking that that's how you feel. Why is that? Why do you think that? And then we kind of start that conversation. So I definitely see both ends. So that's the one extreme where there's that bodybuilder who is analytic, like likes numbers, likes answers, likes specific. I have pain here. I need to know what structure is bothering me. I need to know why it happened. Um, I want an MRI because I know something is torn and I may need surgery. And you have the other end of the spectrum. It's like, yeah, like I got this ripping, burning pain down my arm and it, uh, it wakes me up at nighttime. And oh, by the way, I can't hold a coffee cup because my hand keeps going to sleep, but I'm going to keep pushing through it. <laughs> so you have both ends of the spectrum and that's a completely different hat that you have to wear with those two patients. Um, so I, I can't really say that 
the uh, the bodybuilders lean one way or another. What what is what is good and what what I have noticed is because I work with 3DMJ, I am kind of biased toward a certain type of athlete. So I don't work with the athletes who like subscribe to like, um, oh gosh, I don't know, like, uh, I keep keep thinking like Rich Piana. I know that's, he's not, you know, God rest his soul, but like that kind of like those kind of people were like, ah, bro, like just push harder. Like, so the athletes that, that follow 3DMJ that would reach out to me are kind of a certain caliber of athlete. Um, so that helps, that helps because usually they have a decent idea of where we're going to go with this process. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I would say the bodybuilders are on both spectrums, just like general population are on both spectrums. Um, it's really just about kind of hearing them out, seeing where they're coming from, why they're coming from that place. And then just easily kind of adding in some, some thoughts for consideration. Um, you know, does this make sense? Like, okay, you had an x-ray that showed arthritis in your knee. Okay. And you just started having pain a week ago. I got you. Okay. I understand that. Now, do you really, I'm I'm condescending in the way I even start that, but I could say, so arthritis is a condition that happens over years and years. It's, it's, it's kind of degenerative and, and we don't really see arthritis um, on an x-ray necessarily correlating to symptom uh, presentation and people can have pretty bad arthritis and have no pain and people can have a little bit of arthritis, have quite a bit of pain. Um, do you think that makes sense given that you've probably had this arthritis before last week, but your pain only started last week. So maybe there's more to it. That's kind of one of the ways I would kind of go about that person. Who's just like, you know, I got bone on bone. The doc told me I have the knees of an 80 year old physical therapy can't help my bones. So what am I here for? It's kind of like you, you got to accept what they're saying. You have to listen to them, what they're saying and, and hear them out. Because usually in the healthcare system, no one really listens, right? <laughs> then when they come to a physical therapist or a chiropractor, we have time. We have the gift of time with them. We're not in an eight-minute office visit where we're in and out, you know, prescribed medication or given injection. And um, we have the gift of time. So we really have to be that role for that person to uh, to kind of vent a little bit and get listened to and and um and then you know give give our education uh appropriately the last question i would have for you and it's back to regarding the bodybuilders or or anybody that's um pretty proficient when it comes to moving or exercising yeah Um, we should we should probably make that distinction because yeah bodybuilders bodybuilders weightlifters powerlifters anyone who just goes to the gym you know it's kind of kind of just anyone anyone like that people that have proprioception you know yeah Yeah. people Uh, who don't squat like newborn giraffes like we get we get get what a squat looks like yeah but my, my question is is like after you you kind of unpack all these nocebic narratives or this, this stuff that they're shooting at you, do, do you ever make the shift to saying like, okay, look, you have a, you have all this training experience. What would you do? Um, I'm not sure I understand. What do so you, how, would, do you ever kind of shift it to your, to your client? Oh, oh, ask the, oh yeah. Great question. Yeah. So sometimes if, um, sometimes I'll ask the patient, like, so what do you think it is? Like, mm. what do you think is going on here? And then they may, 
go on a, a whole list of reasons why they think they're having their pain or, Oh, I got a 50 year old man. Oh, I got, I got hurt when I played football in high school. And then my knee, like, wait, <laughs> wait a minute. <laughs> what? <laughs> um, so yeah, I, I do. Sometimes I do turn it around and say like, so what do you think? Like, what, I feel like maybe you're not, um, you're not uh, accepting some of the things I'm saying. Like, what are you feeling? Like, what are you thinking? Like, why do, why do you feel how you feel? And then maybe they'll have a legitimate reason. Like there are some th- many times that I learned from, from patients, like they, no one knows them better than they do. Right. So I, we, I, we could have as much evidence or research as we want, but that N of one is a real thing. Um, and everyone's going to be different. So that's a great question to ask patients is what do you think it is? Like, this is what I have just told you about pain, how pain doesn't necessarily equal tissue damage, X, Y, and Z, uh, alarm system, desensitize the system, graded exposure. What do you make of it? What do you think? Does that make sense? Or, does it, or you know, do you have any questions about that? Um, so yeah, I think that's a great, uh, a great question to help engage the patient, but also remind us that we have to keep an open mind because sometimes we're wrong. Sometimes, you know, in those cases, sometimes in those specific uh, tissue damage doesn't equal pain. Sometimes tissue damage does equal pain, (laughs) right? So I can't be so biased and have the pendulum swing the other way um, where, uh, you know, I'll go through the whole spiel about how people have rotator cuff tears and maybe don't have pain and, and then ask the patient, okay, so what do you think about that? And they're like, well, I get that. It makes sense. I forgot to mention though, that, um, right about the time the pain started, I, uh, uh, reached, reached back to grab something. And like, I felt the pop in my shoulder and like my bicep curled up and I'm like, wait, 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 wait. like what? Like, okay, maybe we need to have a different conversation. So yeah, it's always good to ask that question. And it, it, like I said, it helps us check our biases and help, uh, helps us to kind of keep our open mind that we talked about before. Yeah. Now you now that uh, last question last question I promise. Nah, <laughs> man, now, all, all good, all good. Now that you mentioned the whole alarm system or whatever, do you find yourself explaining pain to your patients? Because honestly, I just quit doing that, <laughs> and I just ask them what they think is going on and try to make try to make them like have sense out of their experience. So how do you handle that conversation if you yeah. do at all? Yeah, that's a great question, and I, I do I do see value in it. Um, I I've seen. Because a lot of times the the idea that that there's a certain structure or a certain imbalance that's causing pain, it could be quite um, quite depressing and like quite overwhelming almost. So I, I look back to when I was in physical therapy school, and the the joke I don't know if it's the same with you guys, but the joke in physical therapy school is that you don't know everything that's wrong with you until you go to PT school because all the labs, like you just get brought up in front of the class and your teacher's like, look at this guy's pronation. (laughs) This is a perfect example of someone who's got like bad feet or something. Um, So I went through a phase where I was like walking on eggshells. Like I would take a step and I would imagine my arch collapsing, my tibia not rotating, my kneecap shifting, my hip not supporting me, my lumbar spine going into lordosis, my literally every step that I took, I'm thinking that all these things are happening. I'm, I'm like this fragile, this fragile being bring that into the gym. And that translates to, 
overly long workout, uh, warmups with foam rolling, stretching, activation drills, bands, and then any kind of ache or pain that I have kind of going about it from like this structural point of view and trying to release this muscle, adjust that muscle. Um, so I, I kind of know that feeling and I wish someone would have told me like, Hey, I know you're having pain, but what we're kind of seeing in the research is that pain doesn't always have to mean tissue damage. Um, so yeah, one of the, one of the, uh, I guess ways that I usually go about it is, um, I usually start with that. I usually say we have pretty good evidence that you can have pain um, without tissue damage. Um, pain is multifactorial. We know that things like sleep, things like stress, things like um, new movements, things like a change in lifestyle, all of those things, sleep, uh, I said sleep, nutrition, hydration, all of these things can contribute, not cause, they can contribute to your pain. Does that sound reasonable? Because I don't want to say to them, I don't want them to think that I'm saying it's all on their head or, or I don't want them to leave this interaction thinking that guy just told me that my back hurts because I had a bad night's sleep. Like I want to make sure they understand that those factors can contribute to their pain. Um, and we can modify the modifiable ones. Some things we can't modify like, Oh, I don't know having a baby, <laughs> like you're not, you're going to have some rough nights of sleep. What are you going to do? Like you can't change that. So modify what we can. Um, and that just kind of helps put them at ease a little bit. Like it helps take that, the patient from what I explained I was in physical therapy school, helps them out of that mindset where now maybe they're a bit more relaxed. Like they know, okay, if I sit with my head forward and I'm watching a TV or, or on my phone, I'm not necessarily like, compressing my nerves and squishing the jelly out of my discs. Like it's okay to sit like that for a little while and then I can move and everything will be okay. There's power to that. There is definitely power to that. Um, so yeah, I usually explain pain to everybody a little bit differently to certain people. Some people you could tell are really engaged in the process. Like they're asking questions and they're like asking about different things. And so those people we kind of just feed off of and then the conversation gets deeper and deeper other people that just aren't having it, they're just like, yeah, my knee hurts. Like, I don't care what you're going to tell me. Like, then I'll just keep it very gotcha. uh, on the surface and then kind of just go on with our treatment. Um, but yeah, I find, I find value in, um, in educating about pain, but it's definitely different for every person, depending on how like perceptive they are yeah. or like their personality. It's funny now that you mentioned your uh, physical therapy situation or what we call like the med student syndrome or something like that. Because ever since we started school, this guy has had a, a, an adrenal tumor, like COVID five times. God forbid. I say it as a joke. I say it as a joke. Wait, can I tell you a funny story? So I was taking a course um, the other morning. So when I train in my basement, I, I put a podcast on or I listen to a course or something. And I, so I was taking this course on uh, radiculopathy and I just took this random course cause I had it. I got a subscription uh, and, and I was taking this master class and I'm squatting and I'm like feeling like sensitivity in my back. And I'm like, this is crazy. I don't have back pain. Like I don't, it's, you know, but, and I'm, I know that this exists. I know I I'm the one that I know this happens and it's actually happening to me. So it's an interesting thing how just by listening to that podcast and I'm sure maybe it was because I slept two hours that night, maybe it was because of something else, but 
I truly think that having that in the background, just listening about nerve roots and, and irritation and, and pain down the leg and lower back and lower back. And I really do feel like that was probably one of the reasons why I felt a bit more hypersensitive in the, in my lower back. Um, but yeah, that's, uh, it, it's, it's, it's definitely true. And I don't want to bad talk my PT school because they did exactly what they had to do. Like they were mm-hmm. fantastic. I learned a ton I passed my boards with ease, which is their job, right? They need to make yeah. us pass our boards, teach us how to think. And then it's our job to then think when we're out and then become our own, their, our own uh, professional. So I, I, if I ever talk about physical therapy school, it's no knock to them because they're in a position where they have this test that they have to have their students pass. If the stuff on the test, which probably takes years and years to develop because they have to test the questions with test takers. Right. And then they have to get this test and then the curriculum has to reflect the test and things change by the week in physical therapy or in, in chiropractic, right. Things are always changing. So it's such a hard thing to do for schools to stay up to date on like the current evidence, because what are they going to do if they don't teach the students what's on the test and they teach them about pain science or, you know, I don't know any of the concepts we talked about, they're going to take their test and, and, and they're going to say like, well, you know, what the heck is going on? Like we didn't learn any of this. So uh, yeah, no, no fault to, to PT schools out there. They're doing their jobs. They're making clinicians ready to go. And then it's the clinician's job. It's on the clinician to then take that and, and run with it. Well, man, this has been awesome. Like, it's really been great. Thank you for taking your time with us. Absolutely, man. I uh, appreciate you guys having me on. It was a lot of fun.